0: Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Fit podcast, where it's my job to help you apply knowledge that is both scientific and practical into your own life to maximize your physique development and your overall body, as well as your mind. The combination of these two things is what makes you Beyond Fit. Hi guys, this is Jake Parker back on the beyond fit podcast. My guest today is Phil white. I first came across Phil when I was listening to him on barbell shrugged. The most recent episode, uh, when you're hearing this next week is going to be with Anders actually, uh, is going to be the one that's launched tomorrow, sequentially tomorrow when we're talking. Um, so one of my favorite podcasts, I heard Phil on there and the conversation centered a lot around technology and social media. Uh, One of the books that Phil was involved in, among many others, was the book Unplugged with Dr. Andy Galpin, which was basically the, the gist of the book is sort of how our relationship with technology and fitness trackers, fitness technology impacts the way we look at it and the way we address our fitness and our health subjectively. And I found that whole conversation very interesting, especially... The more nuanced topics of how social media makes people react, how social media makes people feel, because I think especially in my life, that's something that plays a very big role, and especially people my age in your mid-20s or younger people like my brother's age and close to their teenage years, but the whole spectrum now is affected by social media. So that's something I found very interesting and why I wanted to reach out, Um, but come to find out, you talk a lot about other things that we talk about on the podcast, human performance, overall health in terms of just mental health and emotional health and how that relates to the physical um, and to to round out your book list here you are also a co-author on the book Game changer the 17 hour fast and waterman 2.0 and then coming in November of this year 2021 you will be co-author of the book a leader's Mind and so that's what we were talking about a little bit before the podcast started so if you want to kind of give us a taste of what that book is going to be like, and how you came upon the topic, uh, what has led you to where you're at today, and just a little bit of a, a background as it relates to your your career so far.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for taking the time and talking with me today. And um, goodness, those who've been back and forth enough over the last few months, uh, <laughs> so uh yeah glad to get the opportunity to do it a bit more long form so um yeah thank you and thanks for everyone listening for in advance for uh listening to us rattle on for a little bit so um yeah in terms of it, the the new book you mentioned the leader's mind with jim afrimo so i'd interviewed jim um several times for train heroic and um always admired his work you know the champion's mind was kind of the the next phase of seminal sports uh, psychology performance books after the inner game of tennis and that kind of era. And obviously Bob Rotella has some really good ones um, on kind of golf psychology that are applied across the board as well. And and Jim's kind of that, that next wave, um, you know, him and Michael Gervais um, a lot of people know from the finding mastery podcast and then compete to create that he has with Pete Carroll kind of the same era. So yeah, just two real giants of sports psychology. And so um, I'd always wanted to team up with him in some way. And, uh, yeah, really, we thought um, what would be, you know, an area where we get, could apply that kind of champion's mind blueprint to to leadership. And, frankly, I think um, you and I probably agree on this, that a lot of business books and a lot of leadership books suck, frankly. Mm-hmm. And some of the reasons for that are that, um, you know, a chief one I would say is that a lot of people that author them are kind of, there are coach to coaches maybe but they haven't had a lot of experience leading people in the field so they know a lot of theory but in terms of the practical on the ground aspects of of leadership and from our standpoint the mindset aspect of that they don't really have the bona fides to, to create a good book so i guess the opposite of that would be say jocko willing to leave babin right whose <laughs> principles are literally battle tested in extreme mm-hmm. ownership and their other books so really to overcome that we we decided to do more of a case study based model so we interviewed a wildland firefighter chief and so part of his um brief is is leading a bunch of rookies in these very scary situations so we talked about um wildfire one time on a hillside in oregon where the flames are cresting the hill almost like Leb hamilton big wave surf kind of height Um, this just wall of flame coming over and he knew that the guys had to hold this ridge line um, or the fire would just completely get out of control and just you know burn several thousand more acres but he's got you know this crew that's a couple of wily old veterans and um and a lot of rookies and second year firefighters who were <laughs> new to at least wildland firefighting and are terrified and wanting to just run down the hill and nice. so yeah literally being tested in the fire of battle in this case battling this um this force of nature and how, how he was able to motivate them to hold the line um, and so, really, we, we look for other leaders who have been in this kind of um, the crucible to, uh, of their profession. So, another one is Tammy Joe Schultz, who is the the pilot who landed the Southwest airline flight where one of the engines blew up and sucked a woman partially out, um, and was able to get this this passenger jet back on the on the ground with no more injury or loss of life. And so. What does it take to not just do her job in that role of putting the bird back on the ground with, you know, 175 souls on board, I think, all told, but how do you communicate in a crisis? How do you lead um, not just the flight crew, but the cabin crew um, in this scenario? How do you keep these people who are obviously panicked, having seen this scenario unfold and one of their fellow passengers? basically get killed by this exploding engine um, and, and how do you put this thing back on the ground? And then we, we started to extrapolate a bit to sports. So a good buddy of mine, um, through Kelly Starrett, my co-author is uh, Nick Gale, who's the, the strength and conditioning coach for the New, Easy, New Zealand All Blacks. So what does it take to keep a team that has the highest win percentage in team sports history? I think around 86, 87%. Mm-hmm. Keep and them what going through. This is in rugby.
0: Okay, that's kind of what
1: the All Blacks are won, you know, the only te- team to win two Rugby World Cups, um, should have won a third. So what, what does it take to t- to, uh, to uh, take a team of losers and turn them into winners is a common narrative. But what does it take for, for you to work with this elite group over 11 years and keep them progressing, keep them aiming high, keep them motivated? So really just those are three examples of these case studies we came up with. and again what, what are just the psychological aspects what are the tools in a mental toolkit that leaders can dip into and they may not ever face a giant wall of fire um with a bunch of terrified teenagers or have to put a plane back on the ground when one of the engines is malfunctioned or lead a team out and you know took to world cup glory but i think some of these lessons um in communication in mindset and motivation carry over
0: yeah well, the first question that comes to mind for me is I'm sure that you've come across Simon Sinek, uh, the book Start With Why, familiar with that. He's someone I think about in the context of has written a lot about leadership. And he talks about, you know, sort of the separation of bureaucratic, bureaucratic leadership, where you're put into a specific formal role of leadership and just leading in everyday life. And so how do you differentiate and what differentiates people and their sort of identity in being a leader, because obviously in, in a day-to-day basis, yes, someone who flies a plane obviously is a leader in some sense, but I don't think that probably in their, in their day-to-day life, they view themselves as a leader, like someone who is the boss of other people would, like someone who is the coach of a team. So how do people in everyday roles that might not be the leader of a team per se, um how do they embody leadership and how do they practice those skills of leadership
1: yeah well i think um in the case of tammy joe schultz that the pilot i mentioned this is perhaps partly being in the military as well as being one of the first female pilots to fly you know certain classes of jets which before it was just kind of top gun you know maverick types um guys and a very male dominated world she quickly realized the importance of servant leadership and so one of her things is to to always bring coffee or hot drinks for for the crew um, particularly when it's a new flight crew um, and a new group that she hasn't flown with before or um, pick up something at one of the gift shops on the way through the airport um, and then really just get to to know them before the flight and and know if there are any concerns they have either about the equipment you know there's a a locker in the kitchen galley that won't close. What are we going to do about that and get those problems taken care of in advance? Um, And then also to to be willing to, you know, she said a lot of pilots that she's encountered, um, particularly those later in their career, once they're kind of situated in the the cockpit, won't want to come back into the cabin for any reason. Whereas she cited one incident where a young lady had um, a particular allergy concern and this needed to be dealt with, you know, right away. And she said, you know, a lot of pilots or co-pilots probably wouldn't have wanted to mess with that and would just leave whoever was in charge of the cabin crew to muddle through. But she would come back and, and, um, you know, and dealt with that. And then also just if the cabin was particularly messy after a flight, she'd get down, you know, clean seatbelts, pick up trash, this kind of thing. And it would just show, particularly when it was a a, a new crew, a new crewmates, that like, hey. Okay, my name might be at the top of the masthead, and I'm ultimately in charge of um, of the plane. And obviously, in an emergency situation, it's on me to solve that in the air. But. Um you know, I, I'm just amongst you guys. I'm just part of the team, you know, the cabin crew, there should be no division between the cockpit crew and the cabin crew. And so just that example of servant leadership is, um, is pretty special. And then we also interviewed, uh, Paul, who's the women's uh, soccer coach at Stanford and has won multiple national championships. And obviously dealing with athletes who are in a high pressure environment, obviously very academically rigorous and a lot of highly driven type A personalities. And, um, he said one thing freshmen often ask him when coming in is, well, tell, tell me about the, your, your culture, coach. And he's like, look, this isn't my culture. This is everyone's culture. Like the, the way that we talk to each other, the way that we act toward each other, we treat everyone from the person driving the bus to a head coach on an opposing team, um, that, that informs and reflects on the culture. And, and it's not just this static thing and so yes we do have these core values and these principles but it's the way each and every one of us the, the the uh playing roster and the the staff and the performance team the medical team around them um how we act and how we carry ourselves uh, it means that this culture either sinks or sails so he said, you know don't ever call this my code co- mm-hmm. co- culture or oh yeah this is good coaches culture this is we're all in this and we all have to own it every day so i think those two big things just um recognizing that small inputs have a large um, impact on outputs and and that culture is not just a static thing but a living dynamic thing and then also servant leadership Um, because whether you're um trying to lead your household better um as part of a you know husband wife team or you're you know trying to lead your kids uh on a football or a little league baseball team or whatever it might be as, as you alluded to I think you hit it on the head everyone is a leader in some yeah. sense whether they know it or not so yeah servant leadership and then being mindful of your inputs and recognizing that those do dictate the larger output over time
0: yeah and it's interesting how you point towards just those small acts of generosity that some people might just brush aside as not important but you forget that we're just people and we bond emotionally we bond over the things that have for thousands of years kept us close together which is sustaining other people giving us you know life giving things giving us compliments that make us feel closer just those small acts can can be such a big thing especially when you're getting to know someone and what jumps to mind to me too as far as just the innate primal mode of being mode of people is that often i don't th- i think people are a lot of times scared to to call themselves a leader or to jump into the leadership role especially it seems present in America in a place where, especially if you go through formal high school and you go through formal college, you're kind of geared to be more of a follower than a leader because that is sort of what props up the bureaucratic system again. But I think it's important for people, and especially I like to speak to people that are my age, that are in their 20s and are are discovering what they want to do for a career or are starting out in a career. And just to realize that you can be at the very bottom of the totem pole hierarchically I in the hierarchy I guess in the in the bureaucratic sense but you can still be a leader in a lot of ways and so I'm curious for someone like you who as far as I understand it your your day-to-day entails a lot of spending time alone writing and researching so how do you look at yourself as a leader in what you do and you mentioned how that plays out in the in the family sense and so how do you separate those different roles and how do you see yourself as a leader when you're not again like typically I think a lot of times when people hear a leader the association is is the boss at the office or something like that but how that plays out
1: yeah I think um it's learning from a lot of great coaches that they only they only got to where they are because they're standing on the shoulders of giants. So, even recently, Jim and I um, interviewed the great coach Dan Pfaff, um, who a lot of people might know from from altis, you know, and uh, has coached numerous uh, Olympic gold medalists and medalists across world championships, you know, all, all different. Um, all, all, all different levels of competition, but it actually started out as a high school teacher, and I didn't know that his coaching path kind of mirrored that of John Wooden, where everyone knows John Wooden, of course, from UCLA fame and you know the longest winning streak in men's basketball um, history in college, um, all those championship seasons and great players that he produced. Um, but he started off as a uh, as a school teacher in a, in a small town in the Midwest, and Dan's path is somewhat the same. Um, you know, he's a science teacher by trade and was um, just, you know, got into coaching, found that, that was his passion and was able to kind of have a crossover where he applies scientific principles to a, a systematic coaching approach. Um, and so Dan, you know, he, he's a very humble guy. And, you know, he's one of these guys that if you talk to coaches and athletes that really know their stuff and they mention four or five coaches, his name is usually among them. but he made the point of like, look, there were people early in his career that poured into him. And so that's the only reason he was able to get to where he was able to to get to. And I've had similar experiences um, in my own career. So I interviewed um, Eric Larson, the author of The Devil in the White City. You know, the guy sold over 9 million copies worldwide. Um, His recent book about Churchill was on, I think like Bill Gates' best book of the year, this kind of thing. So really highly acclaimed author, but, um, when I interviewed him for uh Boston University back in the day for their historical publication afterwards we kept in touch and he really helped me with um public speaking when I released my first book um about how on earth Churchill ended up in this tiny Missouri town in 1946 and his Iron Iron Curtain speech there and yeah so I I had a a scenario where I had to be on Fox and Friends in in New York in the morning and get up at like 3.30 in the morning to do that and then fly back and talk to a a packed room of five or 600 people at the Kansas City Public Library and those were back to back and really nerve-wracking and so he sent me like Larson's seven rules of uh, public speaking or something that was silly like that you know and those really helped me out you know I put four or five of them into practice right away and the other couple I've worked in over the years and so Yeah, really right now I've got kind of a group of younger writers who are writing their first books and um, I'm doing the forward for one. So Shane Trotter used to be um, an editor of several online fitness publications and is also a school teacher. And he's kind of written a book about um, the need for us to kind of re-examine physicality for young people in this country Mm -hmm. and some of the ways to do it. And so I'm writing the forward for that. And have kind of guided him along the way through that process and just over the years, I've had more and more people reach out to me and say, hey, you know, I um, I got this book idea and uh, I have no idea how to, to turn it into a finished product in my hands. So could you tell me the differences between the self-publishing route or the traditional publishing route and just kind of start there and then just this handful of guys that i'm trying to guide along the way to um to make this dream a reality of of getting their first book up and out and at that point the training wheels come off and they've been through it they've learned the lessons they need to and, and they can really fly with it so just recognizing you know the contribution that people like eric larson have made to my own career and then wanting to to pass on those lessons and maybe add a few of my own to um to those folks who who know they've got a book or two or three or ten in them, but have no idea
0: how to how to even begin that
1: process, let alone see it through to publication.
0: Yeah, have you read uh, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of my favorite yeah. books. I love how that was one of the books that inspired me to start the podcast, start coaching, mm-hmm. start writing because he just it it makes it so clear and so salient that like when when you say that people you know I know this person that wants to write a book and people have ideas and it it just constantly is a reminder when you talk to other people that everybody has a good idea. And I try to communicate this to people too, to friends of mine. And I'm probably the the one who needs it the most. So I try to remind myself that everyone has a good idea. Everyone has a project. Everyone has, you know, this or that creative thing, but it's really just all about getting down to getting intentional about it and starting it and getting it finished and working on it because it's so easy to look at this thing and, Oh, it's going to be so cool. The end result and you glorify that so much that it's hard to ever get started on it. So I like that you kind of mentioned that truism there, that your friend told you, you know, the seven tips to public speaking. Often we we want to shy away from things that are that simplistic, but really that's what would, I think we should lean on more. It is the simple things that are going to help us actually put our foot to the ground. We don't want to hear that there's seven easy tips to public speaking that we can put into action. We want to hear that there's this book we should read, and there's this process we should try and there's this thing we have to learn about because oftentimes and again like speaking to my own weaknesses it can be one of those situations where you want to learn more and more and more and use that as as an excuse not to start on something so for someone like you who's researching and writing so often how do you kind of balance the two and how do you balance being ready to write something or to put something out there when you know it can never be as perfect as you might like it to be
1: yeah. I think it's a case of, um, perfect is the enemy of good, you know, so, um, you know, I, I, in addition to the books, you know, I, I write for, for a mentor, I write for for fusion sport that creates the, uh, the smarter base, uh, athlete management system and, uh, champions mind, there's a, a champions mind app that's kind of a companion to the book. So help, help Jim and, and that team out with content as well. And so, you know, I have these, uh, these daily writing commitments, where cal newport's system of time management you know, to do deep work really comes into play and I'm, as you know we talked about this a bit before, I think um, calendaring is, is huge for me, so calendar blocking and then adjusting that on the fly at the end of each day and at the end of each work week to prepare for the next week and sometimes i 'm you know calendared out like the full month in advance pretty much, and then trying to put uh, you know hard stops around that you know if we decide we 're going to take the kids out of school and Go putts around up the mountain somewhere, like we did last week, to make sure that that's um, a hard thing on there. And I have no email, no social media on my phone, that kind of thing. So, um, trying to put some controls around. Um, I think. I forget whether it was Tim Ferriss or who it was, had Cal Newport on recently and, you know, said, well, where can we find you? You know, the typical thing at the end of the podcast. And he was like, well, just find my website. You know, I'm not on social media because I'm a deep work zealot. So my zealotry may not be as far advanced as Cal Newport's on that kind of thing. But um, just recognizing that, look, at a certain point, it becomes an either or binary thing where you're either Over here doing this or you're over there doing that and so with that in mind what are kind of the the big tasks that require large time blocks on the calendar and sometimes you know that these are multi-directional so it could just be you know admin so it's billing clients it's communicating with publishers it's pitching ideas to editors that kind of thing so it doesn't always have to be unidirectional but i think just um within that time block setting the stage is a really important thing and Pressfield gets into this a little bit and others too so um say if i finish one piece and i think gosh dang it i need more coffee so i know okay i'm going to go in and, and fire up a double espresso shot or whatever it is but to prepare for when i come back I'll shut down the previous document, So I'm not going back in there um, and tinkering with it, you know, more than I should be. I'll, I'll leave that for another time. And I'll open the, uh, a new document. I'll, I'll for- a header. And if I only say three or four talking points are, I'll write three or four subheads as well, even if they're crap. And sometimes I'll even force myself to do an intro paragraph because I feel like really, if I have those three elements down then it's just kind of paint by numbers and it just helps me to flow so when I, I get back i'm caffeinated i'm in flow put my headphones on i'm ready to roll now so mm-hmm. i think that setting the stage is um you know a real big one and, and james clear talks about this in atomic habits as well so he'd probably say well if you if you pull that double shot and you clean that the portafilter are you making sure the espresso yeah. machine's top of the water so the next time you have two minutes between calls you can go in and get another one rather than thinking the stage isn't set now. Um, so that kind of thing. But yeah, I think just that small things um, on the face of them, but they add up to big things in terms of not wasting time. And yeah, really the uh, the guilt-free first draft is a big one as well. Just banging something out. And it helps my, my wife ever to help her um, edits all of my stuff. So she's accuracy, I'm speed. So a lot of the time, things are a bit rough around the edges and red lines, comments, hey, you re- repeated the word most here five times in this paragraph, did you mean to do that? That kind of thing. So it really helps having that, that last line of defense from a quality standpoint, and that frees me up to go really freaking fast. So I mean, I write an entire article in probably an hour and 10 minutes before we get on. So I'm not a technician, you know, there are some writers I know that kind of write a line and think oh, this second part doesn't agree with the first part and get really down the grammar, get down the weeds with that. But I'm not one of those people. I'm a speed mm-hmm. guy. So it helps to have a good editor if if you're more on the side of speed.
0: Yeah. So how how did you come about learning that about yourself though? Because I think this is a really good comparison to fitness, especially I mostly, the training I do is related to bodybuilding, at least body composition. And it's it always strikes me as interesting how one person might be far on the volume spectrum, whereas one might be far on the intensity spectrum. And that kind of reminds me of something you said there, like you're all about speed and getting it done, whereas other writers might be a lot more technical. And so how did you come about knowing this about yourself? And how do you recommend that people separate the wheat from the chaff where yes, different things can work for different people. And so I guess where my mind is going is like, back to the bodybuilding example, getting too caught up in like, oh, you know, x person Arnold worked out for four or five hours a day so that's what I have to do to get results Mm -hmm. and then it's another one of those situations where you set the bar so high that you don't even start so how do you recommend that someone goes about finding their style because I'm presuming you didn't find that you know right away when you started writing but how is what was that process like
1: yeah I think it was partly trial by fire in terms of working full time for a couple of tech companies and doing all this human performance stuff on the side and, and, and the books and you know, my first book I wrote, it was you know, seventy-five, eighty thousand words this is a book called On the Record. It's kind of about the history and culture of, of DJing. And um yeah, I just stepped in to help a friend with that. So I kind of stumbled into book writing accidentally and then just happened to freelance on the side to make a bit of extra money, you know, with two young kids. Um so I just had to learn how to get fast, and then I think um, a good buddy of mine, Brett Chalmers, who was actually the guy that, that hired me for my first job out of college, um, writing for a tech company. Just what we would talk candidly, you know, we're both uh, espresso fiends, so talk at Starbucks a lot about the craft of writing and that kind of thing. Um, and he would always say to me, like, you, your biggest asset is speed. It's just pure speed. Um, so maybe being like the fastest kid in the neighborhood, um, <laughs> foot speed wide it was not my thing. I wish it had been because, you know, some of my like heroes growing up with Linford Christie, the British Olympic champion in 100 meters and Colin Jackson, the 110 meter hurdle. I wish I was fast like those guys. I'm not. I'm, I'm fast in, in maybe two things in life. One is, I'm okay on the, on the concept too, you know, of rowing intervals and um, two is writing. So yeah, just having someone like that who is te- almost 10 years older than me to the day. Um, so it's somebody that's kind of a stage ahead of me career-wise that can kind of speak truth into strengths and challenges and areas of development Um some of your rule weaknesses i guess and, and and just being willing to hear that feedback and seek it out um and, and then just partly it was situational like i said i had a a toddler who is now about to start high school um had a full-time job i was doing freelance magazine writing. My, my buddy said hey my dad's real sick I can't finish this book i've got 800 words i need eighty thousand words we have i think three and a half months to do it can you help And never having written anything more than 5,000 words, I said yes with fear and trepidation and just figured it out. And the way to figure it out was nights and weekends, every night, every weekend. I mean, sometimes I'd be be interviewing a DJ on the West Coast until 4 a.m., 5 a.m. And then I'd get up maybe two hours, two and a half hours of sleep, get up and go to a full-time job and then rinse and repeat. And that was um, interesting. So, yeah, partly just dumb luck, partly situational and partly happy somebody again who's you know a decade or so advanced the way you're at to um, just honestly say hey what do you think some of my strengths and weaknesses are and, and how can I develop continue to develop in both areas.
0: Mm-hmm. So what has that process been like as far as have you had other mentors either in person or just that you've looked up to through some favorite books or blogs I guess when you were coming up in writing was that a time when blogs were starting to become more popular and how did how did the whole transition work into YouTube, podcasts, you know, that are more so the medium now?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So no, no formal mentors, but I think it, it helps the talk shop. And again, if you reach out to people that are might seem unreachable, you may be surprised at how open and receptive they are because people help them. So, you know, David Epstein, who wrote The Sports Gene and more recently Range is a good example. So I interviewed him for, for Trained Heroic. Um, Was kind of doing a series on youth sports, and so I'd I'd already talked to Chris Bell, who did the uh, the show Trophy Kids um, for HBO about real bad sports sports parents. And I thought, well, Dave's next book Range is going to be perfect for this because he talks about you know the benefits of uh, the network effect and not specializing too young and this kind of thing. So yeah, just got talking to him, and just we talked periodically since, and then. Alex Hutchinson, who writes the sweat science col- column for Outside Magazine, is another one. Um, and so, just um, Ian, Ian McMahon, who is a, a PT by trade but writes for the Atlantic, writes for Outside, is a great writer and, and is putting out these amazingly high quality pieces as a hobby, really. <laughs> so, uh, just just being able to spitball with these people and get with like minded folks and hear what some of their challenges are and think, oh, those are some of the things I'm struggling with, and then. Um, yeah, just really have that kind of in, more informal stuff. So, um, yeah, I think that would be a tip for people is like, look, if whether you're looking at a podcaster or a, a writer or whatever your field is that you're either in and you want to improve and advance in, or, um, you just want to start anew, you may not be able to get to a Chase Jarvis say, or, um, a Tim Ferriss, but maybe some pick someone that's maybe two runs above you on the ladder and yes. stop there. Yeah, And, you know, as long, as long as you're respectful of their time and, and um, you know, you, you just let it known to them, hey, any help you're able to give me would be great. Or could we just have a quick chat one day? I'll work around your schedule, this kind of thing. You'd be amazed at how open and receptive most of them are. Um, and, and, you know, if you send out five emails, you might get three replies when you expect to get none. So, again, like you said, sometimes, as Pressfield would say, it's just kind of overcoming that inertia, like right, that drag that voice in our head that says you can't
0: mm-hmm. but what's the one
1: thing that you could do right now to to say yeah i can and then just start taking the action
0: yeah yeah i couldn't agree more with that i that reminds me of a lot of times doing my podcast that i reached out to someone the two examples that always come to mind first are i did actually get to interview Stephen pressfield uh, about a year ago and then david allen also came on the show and it was just one of those things where like whoa i couldn't believe that they actually responded to my emails but I think another thing I would say to people is what you know. What are you even losing if it takes you five, ten minutes to write an email at most, and then you never hear from them? So what? You know, it's five or ten minutes that you took a chance, and there's such a high upside. It's like why not do it? But I completely agree. In my experience, people are so much more willing to help and to lend their time than than you might think. And I, I said we were going to get to some psychological fallacies eventually, and that also that almost seems like one of the most prevalent ones: thinking that. Oh, you know, everybody, Stephen Pressfield must get dozens and dozens of invitations on podcasts a day. And it's almost like, because people think that it makes them less likely to reach out. And so he really doesn't get as many uh, requests and stuff as you might think. So when someone actually does ask him, he, he'll he have some time or, you know, as just one example. Yeah, for sure. And I
1: think honoring that by being prepared, you know, one of my Absolutely, big things yeah. is,
0: I'm
1: more in the business of interviewing than I am of writing in some ways, because interviewing is just, you know, is the source and um, the, the writing is just an output really. So I think that being prepared for interviews is is crucial. So, you know, obviously I know you've read Unplugged and you've done your due diligence. And I, and I really like that when someone else is on the other side of the microphone is asking mm. the questions that is obviously prepared and, and engaged because the, the more famous somebody gets the, the more lazy interviewers become, you know, they'll, they'll ask someone like, say, Ben Harper or, or another Grammy, you know, winning musician. So so what is the difference, the main differences between this album and your last album? That's a lazy, stupid question. They get asked that all the time and they're going to switch off immediately. Whereas if you can look at, you know, every interview Ben Harper's done for the last 18 months, uh, I and riff off of some things, ask some things that have been asked in a different way, ask, ask some new questions that yeah. if you were the reader, you would geek out on and be like, hey, you know, someone else who likes his music that you would sit there and be like, man, can you believe that? I never knew that about him. What, what is it that you would like to know as the casual fan? Like mm-hmm. try to shift your mindset there a little bit. And then from there, spend two, three, four, five, ten 10 hours going in, spend, you know, five to 10 X the amount of time you would spend on the interview preparing for that. Um, and at the very least, have some topic areas written down. Even if you're not, you know, in the mode of doing a bunch of formalized uh, word-for-word questions that you're just going to read out, and then, you know, from there, active listening, where you just, you know, are willing to pivot from those things and, and go down a rabbit hole. And yeah, somebody that's at that high level, when they have a new album come out, they might be doing ten interviews a day for two or three weeks, right. um, the same with a director. Or an actor with a new movie, um, someone with a new book. So they're going to get bored of lazy, crappy questions really fast. And you want to be the one that stands out where the agent emails you later and says, wow, they told me that was one of the best interviews they've done in ages. Not because it feels good, but just, you know, or you need that validation, but just, you know, that that preparation, that hard work pays off. So, yeah, when you're thinking about whether it's interviewing someone that's at that higher level formally or seeking out their advice like so be prepared um asking good questions like we we interviewed a photographer Chris card for a forthcoming project um back along and he said he's super willing to write back to people on Instagram and this is a guy you know with three million plus followers I think he has wow. the most the most viewed image ever on Instagram as the guy on the slack line in front of the moon you know it's oh just, right as high-end as it gets in terms of skill set, Matt Ann has a big following to boot, um, but he tries to write back to almost every DM on Instagram. Now I'm going to flood him with DMs from people listening, but, um, but he doesn't want people asking lazy questions about photography. Like He, he can help with specific tactical things. Uh, but 90% of those questions he does get are boilerplate, so he'll just copy and paste the previous response maybe. Um, so what what is it that this person can actually help you with so you don't waste their time or yours?
0: Mm-hmm. I think two things that are interesting there. One is uh, another person who jumps to mind that I've shared email correspondence with and still uh, it's uh, up in the air on him possibly coming on the podcast, which would be really fun, is Derek Sivers. Are you familiar with him, the, uh, another author? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so yeah. he has on his website basically it's it's pretty clear that here's all the podcasts I've done and interviews I've done. Uh, if you really have something genuinely new or unique to ask me, then feel feel free to email me and we can talk about doing a show together. But he's like, I'm not just going to rehash the same thing over and over again. It makes that very clear. But he is another one of those people that is probably getting you know hundreds of emails per week, uh, give or take. And he is another one of those people who really prides himself on getting back to everybody. And uh, the other thing that really struck me was just the, the part you talked about, about following your own interest, which I think is also so important, but it's sort of a dichotomy because something that I've realized in my own career path is that it's kind of that balance of everyone wants to use the word passion. And so I think that kind of gets over you sometimes. I believe that you should follow your passion, but at the same time, I think too many people that when they're in a career that they love or a space that they love like for me it's health and fitness but you shouldn't pull the wool over your eyes or expect that it's always going to be innately pleasurable kind of like the deep work there's always that initial barrier to get into it and then once you're into that flow state you're glad you started but i don't think that people should look to that career path they want to follow that thing that they love and expect that it's going to be every single day they're going to love to do it and they're going to be excited to do it no you still have to kind of push yourself and you still have to realize that work is work and it's going to be there's going to be a barrier to get into it so don't expect it to just be easy all the time but it is going to be fulfilling in the long term to follow something that you really do care about because you're going to have more energy than the person who's just you know working in law because they thought that it would be a lucrative career or whatever that it may be
1: yeah i think so um yeah and also recognizing you brian holiday's newsletter is pretty good and um a recent uh edition of that Coded Marcus Aurelius is saying, you know, you're going to confront some bad people, some outright evil people, you know, some people that basically are going to try to screw you, some people that don't have your best interests at heart, selfish people, etc. Um, so just be be ready for that, you know, um, and then just kind of riff off of that a little bit. But yeah, unfortunately, not everyone is going to be good to their word. Um, there are a lot of people that will help you along the way, but everyone has, you know, whether it's your kids in school is gonna have, you know, have one or two teachers, or they just don't jive, or they feel, a, be a flat out mean to them, who's just hopefully gonna prepare them for life and recognizing the coworkers, bosses, you know, you're not always gonna be in an ideal situation. And Also, even there are parts of any job that you may not like, so I don't like going through other people's edits. Like, I sure don't like editing other people's work um, and just recognizing even like on the book front, the kind of projects that are not a good fit for me are where someone already has at least something down and just wants you know, that to be cohesive with new chapters yet to be written. That's not a good fit for me. So I say no to those projects now, no matter who it is, because I'm just not gonna be able to give them my best work on it. And I have real, really no interest in doing that. But yeah, I mean, I, I always forget with the time blocking to, I have a note here, go through Nicole edits to blog posts. So my wife I did three pieces yesterday. I didn't lock off any time today to go back through those and actually look at her red lines, look at her comments and do what she says basically. So um, there are gonna be those aspects of the job that you don't enjoy. Whereas I love the research, I love the interviewing, love the writing itself. Um, you know, but all the, and all the admin, like billing clients, pitching editors, all that kind of thing. I don't like doing that, but it's a necessary evil. So yeah, I think you're right. Like having this Pollyanna vision of that everything about it is rosy and you're gonna have this meteoric rise to the top and it's gonna be a linear progression. Um, it's not, it can be, but often it's not, but yet that doesn't mean that you shouldn't really love the bits that you do love and deal with the rest, even if sometimes it's a little bit grudgingly.
0: Yeah. And I think that because you and I both have such a strong personal productivity system, that probably prevents burnout too, in the sense that from from what you've talked about, I, I assume that it's very important to you, like you've said, to block out time for your family, to block out time for exercise, for just things that rejuvenate you. And I feel the same way. I don't have a family of my own yet, but I make sure that you know it's on my calendar to call my parents if I have it that week, or go ahead. I I luckily live a couple hours away from them. So trying to make it back home to see them every month or two, or just every week, trying to hang out with friends, trying to do an activity for me that's pleasurable. Because if left my own devices, I'm the type of person that I'll just work and work and work and work becomes more ambiguous, but I'm still kind of in that constant state of pressure, and I should be doing something. But It's easier for me to just follow my calendar if it says Thursday night is the time I try to make time for friends, then I'll do that and I'll leave that rejuvenated or uh, Saturday I have planned a couple hours to walk outside, if I wouldn't have put that on there, I wouldn't have probably got to it so it's almost that holding yourself to a strict schedule, and it doesn't even always have to be those things that are difficult, sometimes it's those things that are pleasurable that you because you maybe are a more type A person that you're not going to get to.
1: Oh, yeah for sure and i think um having a system of micro rewards so the only reason i came to the states in the first place is really because of michael jordan's example in the nba so you know i played college basketball and um and soccer and that was really my driving force for a long time and just recognizing that it's probably not good if i you know check and see who's making the play in tournament or is on the bubble for that if i I was checking those scores all the time. So, you know, I'll I'll set, they might seem silly little micro rewards, but just to be able to check the NBA scores or watch five minutes of highlights or something like that. Once I get to this point, you know, is it finishing an article? Is it getting to the next subhead in a book chapter or whatever it might be, that kind of thing? Um, Or go get yourself another cup of coffee or, you know, whatever it is, go call a friend. Um, And and even rewarded myself with um, those tasks that i enjoy more so saying all right next thursday i know all it says on my calendar is book right this <laughs> is off the entire day for book stuff and i'm only doing that there's no phone calls there's no admin there's no email checking i'm just going to do it um And then just trying to limit excesses, you know, for some people that might be social media for me, it's probably checking my inbox too much. Mm -hmm. um, Particularly when I know that I'm waiting to hear back from my agent about this or a collaborator about that. And use that as an excuse to check email way too much. And then suddenly you think, man, am I one of these statistics in Cal Newport's new books, you know, that kind of thing. So um, just recognizing what your excesses are. And also knowing that, like you said, sometimes, um, it could be a cliche i guess but if you have a really big engine then just going and going and going at 9,000 rpm until your, your engine blows up you know um then that's there are going to be consequences for you and for other people whether that's in your physical practice or in your in your work or in your home life or whatever it might be so um trying to self-regulate and know the warning signs like right now my office if you could see it which i won't show you is a complete mess and that's a it's usually messy but it's more messy than usual and so to me that's a warning sign of like a um not that i'm a particularly tidy person by nature but you know um it it just seems like that desk starts to fill up when i'm when i'm extending myself too fast um and then also i think you know life stages is a big thing to take into account because you know, I have two kids um, who won't be done with school, the youngest for another six years, and so there there is no guaranteed paycheck in our house. If I don't write, we don't eat, essentially, and so I have a real problem with balancing self actualization projects, like the stuff that really gets me going, like main you know the books with Jim, and and then those um, writing relationships I've had over a long time with a number of clients um, with. Oh, my buddy has a, has a, a real crappy website. He, he needs a writer to help him redo it. Could you do that for him? That kind of thing. Um, <laughs> which I have no business doing, but the $1,500, two grand, whatever it is, sounds real appealing at the time. And you said, even if you have a tolerance for volume, that only works, you know, that only goes so far. Like one time, um, Sean Waxman, who's one of the, you know, master level Team USA weightlifting coaches, told me in Olympic lifting that unless peds are involved this this arms race of constantly trying to increase volume within a programming cycle or you know a a training year or even a four-year olympic cycle works until it doesn't until someone drops 380 pounds on their head yeah so i'm not very good at that um i i do have a lot of recovery practices in the toolbox whether it's mental things from gym or it's you know mobility stuff from Kelly, or it's breath work from Ryan McKenzie and Patrick McKeown and others. So I do have a lot of tools in that, arsenal, you know, hot and cold, all of that stuff. But at a certain point, there's no amount of recovery in the world that's going to overcome too much volume and too much density and intensity and those other factors you mentioned. So recognizing when Fergus came up with that, what he calls his VIDC model, volume, intensity, density, and collision slash contact, and, and trying as much as possible not to have two super high volume days in a row or two two super dense days where it's wall-to-wall phone calls or Zoom calls all day. And knowing that you need a little waving right? That's what Pavel or Brett Jones and Strong First would call it. You, need, you can do the same thing every day as long as you don't do the same thing every day, I guess is how Brett Jones would say it. So what he's going for there is if you did, 50 one handed swings in your right hand and 50 in, in the other hand um, with a 32 pound bell. And then you did 10 get ups on each side with the same the same weight. Well, the next day, it doesn't mean you can't do swings and get ups. You should probably just drop down to the 24 or if you're jumping up to the 36 or the 40 pound bell, drop your volume, increase your rest periods, you know, waviness. So what are those? You know, outside of the physical realm, what are those dials and levers that you can tweak and you can slide to to try to, to give yourself some waviness? So again, even if you're doing the same thing every day, you're not doing exactly the same thing every day.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a quote that I've seemed to mention like two or three times over the past couple of weeks by Richard Feynman, where he says something along the lines of, uh, you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. So it just reminds me of you talking about self-awareness there, knowing where your weak spots are. And even if you know nobody can be perfect at that, it's very hard to assess yourself, but just trying to do your best. And hopefully you have people in your life that can help point out, this is where you fall short. This is where you need help. This is where, you know, like you said, noticing when your office gets dirty, that might be an indication of you're, you're starting to go into overdrive and just noticing things about yourself. Um, So just backtracking a little bit, I wanted to make sure we answer another question that I had about interviewing. You mentioned that that's such a big part of your job. And so I'm curious how you go about trying to get good information or the right information, if you can even say that going into it. There's probably some stuff that you just come upon sometimes that you're really glad that came up that you weren't expecting. So how do you balance the intuitive and the serendipitous in an interview versus being planned out and having very specific questions and time points you want to get to?
1: yeah i think um if it's an assignment for a client and it's around say some a nutritionist or an athlete that can can speak to how they're using a, one of their new products and they say it'd be great if you could have them say something about these three things right okay well that's that's more of a functional interview with defined outcomes. Um, So obviously that's, some people view that as restrictive, I view it as somewhat liberating because then you have constraints, much like writing about a microcosm period of history. If you're writing about a one week period or a speech or an event, okay, well, that's your, your, your locus and then everything else is just timeline around right and, and you're constrained by the facts so sometimes uh what can be viewed as constraints is just beneficial structure versus if you know or maybe a wider topic so say like with the leader the leader's mind book jim and i each came up with a list of people we thought would be into interesting the interview and then we divided it in half and you know, he tried to get four or five i tried to get four or five and then we came together you know with a google doc on, on the questions and, and tried to do our due diligence there but it's a broader topic so it's around leadership mindset right it's around the mental game it's around mental skills it's around applied psychology so maybe your mandate is a little bit more broad which gives you you some more freedom a bit more bandwidth um or it could be something um where you know for a podcast interview somebody is so prolific or they've been around for so long say say someone like dan Pfaff or dan john or someone who has 40 50 years of coaching experience that Heck, you could ask him just about anything and they would give you an interesting answer. So it could be based on the person themselves and their range, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they're a, a specialist. Um, they're an academic who uh, like Keith Barr at um, USC Davis that um, focuses you know, on, on collagen research and you know soft tissues and that kind of thing. So they're so specialized that you, you definitely want to pick their brain and have them do a deep dive into the, their topic. So really knowing your interviewee is key.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you
1: working for yourself? Or are you working for someone else? And if you're working for someone else, what is going to best serve them? Maybe they give you hard outputs, like I said. Um, maybe they give you some loose guidelines, that kind of thing. Um, maybe it's the type of piece you're doing. Are you doing a Q and A? where it's one subject? Are you doing a book chapter? Are you doing a a more kind of magazine feature style where you're interviewing three or four people? Um, And with that in mind, what are the other two or three interviewees that you have lined up more likely than not to talk to? So say if you have, you know, three different kinds of psychologists, okay, well, somebody who's more on the counseling side might want to talk about, say, you're doing a piece on student-athlete mental health. They might talk about suicide risk being elevated during COVID, self-harm, body image, that kind of thing. Whereas if it's a performance or sports psychologist, um, they may be more focused on the you know how do i get this athlete to the best state before practice and competition side of the piece um, and not talk so much about the mental health so you just know by their role or their reputation or their body of work a little bit more about them so I, I guess trying to find context thinking about inputs and outputs and um and then from there just not being lazy just doing your due diligence so by not being lazy i mean come in prepared and then actively listen so that you can pivot and not put words in their mouth, but react to what they're saying and and get to where they're trying to take you.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really like what you said there about just knowing the context, because for me, one of my biggest struggles is just, I am interested in so many different things and I am such a generalist that I can become fixated by certain topics. And so it's more helpful for me to have one defined either topic of conversation or topic of research because I can go so many different areas. So like you said, knowing, What's the purpose of this interview? What it Again, it's, it's a lot more of a, a structured thing if you're working for someone else or you have a specific outcome for a book, chapter, outline. So I think that that's very key, going in with a certain specific goal. So uh, as we start to wind down here, I had one other question that I thought would spark some interesting conversation. And again, just speaking to my own difficulties and struggles, I know that when you talk about success or self-actualization, and this is coming more or less from what I heard you speaking about on Barbell Shrugged when we initially talked. And just in that people my age, especially again, tend to just view their successes or view their their lives in terms of what other people think or what other people see, especially in terms of social media. So I'm curious as someone who still has social media and you haven't totally disavowed it, like Cal Newport, how do you see the effect of living your life through that lens of how other people see it? Is that always a bad thing? how do you think that that impacts people's ability to make choices? And I'm sure that it probably sparked some ideas around what you talk about in that, in the leaders, in the leaders, um, mind as well.
1: Yeah, I think, um, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because like saying that you shouldn't care what anyone else thinks it isn't not true really. because that's not how we're wired, but yet, yeah, social media does create approval addiction. And if you think, you know, that, success is defined by the number of clicks likes views retweets that is an awfully slippery slope um and yeah I even remember Steve Kerr a while ago talking about that as as we were researching him and we didn't get the interview into the leader's mind but we do profile him and just talking about how you know there was maybe one positive t- tweet about a press conference statement he, he had made and then A lot of negative ones and he he got off and said yeah i just realized the first time like often it makes me feel awful about myself being on there and makes me question myself as a coach and a human being and everything else so he ended up taking a a break i guess um you know kind of i guess people call it like a digital detox after that but i think um if i heard it said once like if you wouldn't trust somebody to advise you then why would you allow them to critique you so if you know, something the other day, like, I, 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 I'm I, a big fan of J.P. Sears, the comedian, and, um, you know, his kind of view on the world. And somebody had written some mean comment, like, it was great, but back when you were actually funny. And I thought, you know, there's probably like 30,000 other comments, and he probably doesn't even look at or respond to them. But I thought, how, has this person lost all ability to be empathetic? Like, how, even if that's what they think, like, why would you go onto these, th- this kind of platform to discourage someone. Like, Can you not project, like if JP Sears was having a down day and he happened to check in and see this comment, how that would make him feel if it was a day where he wasn't feeling particularly secure in himself or in his craft. Mm-hmm. So I think that this, in some ways it's amplified things. Um, we know from the studies that particularly politically, it's making people more radical on both sides. It's reducing that common, common sense middle that we should Probably all inhabit more often than not. And I think also it's, um, is creating this sense of approval addiction which is kind of short-circuiting what how we're wired to behave somewhat by design you know by the people that want us to to devote more attention more often to their platform and what their aims are um it's not connecting the world it's selling more ads, or at least these days and zuckerberg admitted as much in front of a congressional subcommittee a couple of years ago so i think just just recognizing the game and recognizing that maybe if you're having a down day and you know that, you know, you put something out there and you're not ready <laughs> that that being criticized for it or someone slamming you is going to, you know, just knock you down a couple of pegs or two in, um, with your self-confidence or whatever else, that maybe that would be a good day to avoid those forums. Be a good day to avoid news media, so you don't have to read about the latest mass shooting or whatever the bad news of the day is. And just know again, context, knowing your mindset on any given day, and then also recognizing that, like, taking joy in the process. So after Jim and I get off of an interview with someone like um, a Chris card or a Dan Pfaff, like you know, having someone to geek out with about that stuff, whether it's a collaborator or a friend or a family member, um, a peer in your in your industry. Um, and and delighting in the little things so you know it could be you come across a really cool piece of research that blew everything that you thought was true out of the water and then you went in and you found oh okay well there are two other recent studies that confirm that recognizing you were wrong sometimes that can be something to celebrate because it opens your mind in a different way um or it could be just landing a big interview with somebody you know and and finding somebody to celebrate the small win with because i think for people where you're hard driving. You're highly motivated. You're intrinsically motivated. The temptation is to go from one win to another, never pausing to uh, to do what um, what the TNT commentator, you know, multiple Emmy winner Ernie Johnson talks about in his in his book about blackberry moments of taking taking some time to realize that among the thorns there are some blackberries or some other good fruits um, that are tasty and that you should celebrate and, and just taking time to. Uh, to do that. And I think, um, you know, Jim would call that a cognitive distortion, you know, when we magnify minor defeats um, into big things, but we we completely ignore successes or we ignore wins. And like you said, like passion is great, but it only goes so far. Motivation yeah. is great, but it only goes so far. So finding things that refill the tank a little bit rather than being so focused on going zero to 60 as fast as possible, maintaining that speed until our engine blows up, um, which is certainly something I've been guilty of and continue to be guilty of, but just trying to be like, man, that was a freaking great interview. You and finding someone to air high five you with over zoom or something
0: <laughs> yeah and i think another truism that i've noticed is people that are most geared towards success and being ambitious and going after big goals interviewing big names taking on big projects like books it and this is again in my experience it's so tough to feel good about yourself not necessarily feel good about yourself but feel like it's time to celebrate a win and give yourself a pat on the back because Part of what makes us successful is that constant having the gears in motion and looking towards the next thing. And so if you're not very intentional about being accepting of yourself and loving of yourself and celebrating those wins, you can just find yourself really anxious because you're always going towards the next thing. So it's kind of like the, the two sides of a coin. One thing that makes you successful can also make you anxious and frustrated and, and upset with yourself. And I think it's interesting, too, that you said um, on those days that we most need to take a break and maybe get away from that technology and that constant interconnectedness. What was coming to mind for me was like, you're, you're 100% right. But those are the days that I'm most likely to use it as a pacifier. So my advice to anyone who kind of feels the same way would be, again, this is a big part of James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, is try to make the barriers to entry higher. So for me, in terms of technology, I try to have a rule that I don't use my phone for the first hour when I get up. I always log out of social media apps when I'm not using them, things where it just makes you take one extra step to think about, do I really want to do this? Am I being intentional? And it's definitely not always going to work, but introducing more barriers is going to help those negative habits not be quite as accessible. And so hopefully you have that extra step to think about it and not just give in to that negative behavior.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And I think sometimes having guardrails around that kind of thing. So two people um colby nepp who was my old editor at um train heroic and now has his 365 coaching platform and someone you you'd really enjoy talking to as well and then um also jason faruja um both said to me like what are you still doing with email on your phone you know mm. tell me what the use case for that is." as well it's the stoke and addiction it's basically what the use case is and it made me feel more stressed out so yeah just um ended up Ditching that, um, you know, you and I have been back and forth with messaging on Instagram, and you know, like other people's stuff, but I haven't really been posted on there for a while. So I, I don't have that on there. Don't have any of the other social media apps on there. Um, but maybe it's something is you know you use Freedom or Rescue Time to set a timer, you know, whether it's per session or a total daily limit, because self-regulation is all well and good if you have a Navy SEALs, if you're Jocko Willink, right? Like I imagine Jocko doesn't struggle with excess in many areas of his life. and <laughs> But even he would say, well, you know, there's this habit that I had to put in place or this hard stop I had to put in place around that. Um, so even, you know, him or David Goggins, or even, you know, people that we might view as being the most hardcore um, ballet people around still, need systems in place because if you leave jim always says about say the mental game that like ma- mental skills are not magic skills right like it's mental resilience isn't fairy dust you don't just suddenly you're not born with a champion's mind gene and you don't just cultivate these these skills um accidentally much like with your physical practice so stop leaving the mental game the chance and circumstance right and so to extrapolate that to what we're talking about i think having some some guide rails in areas that you struggle with or that you know that, as you said, a good trait, working hard, can start to become excessive. So what are some systems you have in place? Like what you were saying with your Thursday night with friends or you're blocking off an afternoon to go for a walk with a buddy or a family member or whatever it might be. Those are some things that you're doing to kind of let some steam out of the valve a little bit so the boiler doesn't blow up. So what are those things? You know, how do you recognize that the boiler is about to overheat? right like on my on my espresso machine i have two things so there's a there's a temperature gauge on the left for the um for the the, the boiler that pours the shots and then there's the the other boiler which is the steam boiler there's a little pressure gauge and until it gets in that green band you know that it's not heated up, so you shouldn't try to steam your milk or you're gonna get crappy, chunky milk. So what are, the, what are the the PIDs, they call them, right? For regulating temperature on an espresso machine. So what, what is a PID you can put into place in your life? And what is that kind of equivalent of the steam boiler gauge where you can't mess with it at all before it's in this range. And then there's only a certain band Psi, where, where it's in that green range, or like a basketball, right? You want what? What is the old adage? If you drop a basketball from six feet, it should bounce back up to four. Mm-hmm. Well, if it bounces back up to ten, every shot you take that misses is going to be bouncing over the other side of the court. Or if it, mm-hmm. if it's flat, obviously that creates another problem. So, what are some ways to to, to sense pressure buildup and to have tolerances? And then what is the the safety valve or the safety valves to let off pressure, or um, to inject more if you need it. If the ball's either either deflated or it's um, overfull, how do you let do you let a bit of air out, or how do you put more air in? Find your systems, because again, like Jim says, if you leave those things to chance and circumstance, the results are going to be inconsistent at
0: best. Right. It's like it's like uh, James Clear mentions two things in his books uh, that I'm remembering now, which is systems over goals. And then he talks about how you can't rely on motivation. I think that if there's one tip anyone can use and try to put into practice right away in their life, in terms of how to strengthen your mindset, it's just, you have to get rid of this motivation um, focus, whether it be in work, whether it be in working out, because we know that our bodies are trying to conserve energy. The most innate thing we're, we're meant to do is try to conserve calories. So stay on the couch instead of go to the gym. Um, not think and read and write and just be lazy. So you have to set up systems and you have to set up things for yourself to get yourself into action. Because like James says, once you get yourself into action, you don't need motivation because you're going to build that inertia. You're going to build that momentum like we've already talked about. I think one of the best, again, very old sayings, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as they say. So everyone wants to do the right thing. Everyone wants to be in shape. Everyone wants to actualize their goals in their career and their personal life. But it's like it goes back to the War of Art and Steven Pressfield. He says everyone fights their resistance. Jocko fights their resistance. David Goggins does. But I think what Steven would say is they've just fought it for so long and they've become so practiced at fighting their resistance that it's easy for them to get over it. It's not that it's not as strong. Another fallacy is people think that those that are successful just have it easier. They have more willpower. They have more motivation. They don't have these negative thoughts. And I don't think that's true at all. I think they do, but they've practiced getting over those negative thoughts so much that they just kind of barrel right through them because they know that that is not, they're not indicative of reality.
1: Yeah. And also with regard to reality, setting realistic expectations. So, you know, if say I'm writing back and forth with a buddy who I used to lift with back in the day, you know, when we were both fresh out of college and just kind of starting our careers and, um, you know, guy used to be a monster deadlifter in one case, but him and his wife have since had five kids, right? So, you know, asking him about, so, you know, how are your workouts going well? They're not, I just, you know, between the kids and work, I just rarely find the time And I try to get a big one in, you know, Wednesday or Thursday night, and then just maybe fit in a couple of shorter sessions in the week. any ideas on what, you know, what I could do to kind of get back to close to where we used to be. So um, even though he's a lot stronger than me and should probably stick with his deadlift and, and, and it's just naturally a beast of that, I said, man, have you have you ever read pa- Pavel's book, Simple and Sinister? And he was like, no, I mean, I know, you know, know about Pavel, I know about Strong First, but, you know, do some swings now and again. But it's like, man, if you just did swings and get ups, you would have 80, 90% of um, everything you need, you know, to be, chase your kids around the yard, to, you know, Maybe give the older one a run for his money and pick up basketball, whatever um, that kind of thing. And, and you know, it couldn't be any simpler in, mm-hmm. or more sinister uh, in terms of the programming. So sometimes it's just like that—that SBN, like something's better than nothing. Workout as long as you get a little movement quality in. Just bang yeah. out a five-five k on the rower, and if you know you're trashed, turn the monitor down so you're not overly focused on your splits and don't quit. After 500, because it's not mm-hmm. quick enough, you know, whatever it might be, um, the, you know. Another way to say it is just like the pick two workout: so goblet squats and overhead press. Um, we'll start to find just essentialism in, in in whatever you're going for. So you know, Dan John's thing is like pick up heavy things, put heavy things overhead, carry heavy things, right? That that kind of thing. Okay, well that's probably doable. You know, heavy, what heavy is might vary for you from person to person, but you can probably pick some stuff up, probably put some stuff overhead and carry some stuff, you know, two or three times a week. So trying to find um, those kind of things and recognize that the reason that people talk about, you know, performance experts talk about the big rocks with sleep, nutrition, hydration, is because most people are not doing what they, you know, they they know their mom told them you need to drink eight, eight ounce glasses of water a day. Most people aren't doing it, they know you should sleep seven to nine hours, but most people aren't doing it, which is why the people that are experts in those domains keep beating the drum, not because they want to keep themselves in the job. Well, mm-hmm. for example, you know, the, the percentage of people that eat enough fiber in America is probably under 10%, you know, based on recent research I did for a piece of momentous. So eat more fruits and veggies. Everybody knows you should do it, but you don't do it. So if you could just do what you're supposed to do and be brilliant with the basics most of the time, you're going to be 80 percent, 90 percent the way, you know,
0: toward whatever that target is in any area of your life. And the rest is just details. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like tailing back to that. The truisms we talked about around public speaking or writing we know that one page a day can get you a book in a year, but we don't want to do one page a day because that doesn't seem like enough. Another book that I read recently was I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how when giving one of his friends fitness advice, he, she said how she wanted to run three days a week. And Ramit said, well, why don't you just start with one? And she goes, well, one, what's even the purpose? And so he goes, she would rather fantasize about running three days a week than actually run one day a week. So it's all about knowing your inherent psychological limitations and just trying to do the bare minimum to start. And then on top of that, the best thing that people can do is like you mentioned, find your high return activities. I was, I was ready for you to say the 80, 20, you know what I mean? Like so many people will uh, allude to what's the 20% that's going to get you 80% of the results. So when it comes to working out deadlifts, squats, hinges, presses, if you know, your friend was asking you for advice on what sort of workouts to do, it sounds like he's pretty knowledgeable, but say a friend that didn't, Uh, that wasn't knowledgeable, you're not going to tell him to waste his time with curls and tricep extensions and lateral raises, the smaller things that a bodybuilder might do, but you're going to be like, do heavy compound movements because that's going to get you the highest bang for your buck and you can get most of the results in a shorter period of time. So it is just following those fitness truisms you know what your mom told you drinking enough water eating our fruits and vegetables and then of course something that people like you and i try to preach more getting more high protein foods in order to retain muscle and stay full but it really is just so much simple than it's made out to be uh, it's not sexy but it is it's it's super simple when it's laid out pragmatically
1: yeah and i think the, the same comes to your craft as well because part of the reason for giving that that writing a a guilt free first draft advice, you know, if I if I talk to a group of college kids, say um, whatever it might or or talking to an individual, it's you can't edit nothing, right? Like nobody can edit a blank page. So with that in mind, You've got to start somewhere and that cursor is always flashing blank, whether it's for Stephen Pressfield, Stephen King, and pick an author, you know, high profile author, JK Rowling, whatever, they always start with a blank page. So the only way to advance the ball is to put something on the page and you're going to be able to do that a lot more easily if you're not obsessing over grammar technicalities, yep. second guessing yourself along the way. So. Do, doing something is always better than doing nothing, and then you can try to do that something better as you go along. But the doing something is important, and also, you know, I'm not really into American football that much because it's the wrong shape ball and the wrong kind of football, in my opinion, being right. a Brit. But um, not every play is going to be a 70-yard touchdown reception. You may have to grind out some some yards on the ground, one yard two yards, three yards at a time and take some hits going along. And some days are going to feel like that, like you've got a few 300 pound linebackers crunching you, but you're still grinding. You're still getting the ball fed to you and you're still moving forward a bit. Um, And maybe the next day is, is the day that you, you put some, some points on the board. Um, So there are, you can't put points on the board every day, but you can always advance the ball.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a good point to stop here. Phil, do you have any, parting words, let people know about anywhere where, where you can be reached or anything you have coming up here?
1: No, I mean, the, the leader's mind, um, as I mentioned, with Jim Afamo up for pre-order on Amazon now comes out in November. And um, yeah, other than that, just uh, due to the <laughs> dipping the toe in the social waters and then pulling it out again pretty often, um, just anyone wants any specific advice, um, you writers out there anyone anyone wanting to improve as an interview or whatever just hit me up on my website which is uh just philwhitebooks.com happy to help out anyone in anywhere i can and uh yeah i just think we've got a lot of good storytellers out there whether it's folks like yourself that are doing it through the podcast medium it's uh it's writers it's musicians whatever else so i think everyone has a good story and an important story to tell so um be a bit more confident in, in yourself and be a bit more willing to risk um, in putting that out there. And just whether it's your main gig or it's a side hustle or just something you've always wanted to try, write your first book, um, write your first article, whatever it is. Yeah. is. You've got to start You just beginning is the key.
0: Exactly. Just get started. All right. So we'll include those links and thanks so much again for, for sharing your time with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, appreciate all the care and attention you put into your own interview and it it means a lot.
0: Absolutely. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. If you would, please take a minute out of your day to review and rate the podcast as well as subscribe. It would really help me out a lot. And if you're on Instagram, go ahead and follow me on there at jakeparker.fit and screenshot and tag me when you're listening to the show I'll be sure to share it and thank you personally on there